or have another print disability which makes reading, holding a book, or turning a page difficult or impossible. The content is copyrighted by the respective publishers. For more information, please visit us on the web at nfradioreading.org. Hello, this is Rich Longino, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from recent issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And as an initial program note, uh, I'm going to let you know that I'm breaking my usual rule of sticking strictly to articles that focus on local issues. That still will be the majority of the articles, but I did include a few uh, that have national or regional origins that I think will most certainly impact, if they have not already impacted, the communities of eastern Niagara County, which is the territory that the uh, Sun and Journal uh, identifies as their primary market. So I hope you find those articles uh, interesting and uh, thought-provoking as to, you know, is this going to happen in my community or is it irrelevant to me? I, I, of course, think it's relevant. That's why I want to share it with you. So just that, that little note, I'll, I'll let you know if uh, when I go off script, as it were, and uh, am reading an article from a source outside of the uh, Union Sun and Journal. And our first article is uh, headlined, Nine Mile Island Youth Camp in Limbo After Permit Denied. Pendleton Working to Make Site Accessible for Local Groups by Benjamin Joe. The Nine Mile Island Youth Camp has been a place for groups to camp since the 1950s. Today, however, it isn't clear whether paying scouting groups will be able to camp there this season or be reimbursed deposits paid for the privilege. In April, the town of Pendleton denied the Nine Mile Island Youth Camp Incorporated its permit on the grounds that it needed a cleanup in order to get back into compliance with the Niagara County Health Department. This was a surprise to Nine Mile Island Chairman Mike Zimmerman, who in a long email on April 10th blasted the town for closing the camp down without consulting him. Again, I find it absolutely inappropriate that we have not been given the courtesy of a request to discuss any of these concerns with the board, he wrote. I also find it improper that this matter has apparently not been discussed in any open sessions of the town board. In a document that the US&J accessed by a Freedom of Information Act request, Zimmerman claimed that he had sent emails as far back as October of 2022 when he emailed the town board in regard to Councilman Dave Leibel's presentation of photos taken at the camp to the board and his recommendation of closing the camp. Let me be clear that we are not disputing the concerns that were raised last night but rather the manner in which this has been handled, he quoted from an October 11th, 2022 email. This was not an item, an item that was listed on the agenda. We were never contacted to indicate that there was a concern. We were not given the opportunity to address those concerns before it was presented at a public board meeting. And finally, we were never given the courtesy of being made aware that this would be discussed at the meeting so that we could be involved in the discussion. Pendleton Supervisor Joel Merton said before a work session on Monday that he believed that Nine Mile Island Youth Camp had problems with volunteer retention and could not keep up with the maintenance the camp required to be considered a safe environment. The issue of margins of liability and risk is increasingly important, Meriton said of the decision to shut the camp down. Pendleton Town Attorney Claude Jorg said on May 15th that campers could get a campsite reserved through the town clerk's office, much like signing up for a pavilion. Meriton confirmed this Monday, but said that is not happening right now. 
we're working on the details to allow different organizations, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, to camp there, he said. We're trying to make it accessible. Mike Zimmerman could not be reached for comment. And here's a brief uh, article headlined, Motorcyclist Flown to ECMC After Wheatfield Crash. A motorist was airlifted to a local hospital following a crash on Lockport Road in the town of Wheatfield on Tuesday morning. Emergency crews responded to Lockport Road between Ward and Hoover Roads for a motor vehicle crash involving the motorcycle and a utility truck around 7 a.m. The male motorcyclist was airlifted by Mercy Flight to the Erie County Medical Center with serious injuries. Reports from the scene indicated he suffered a head injury and possibly multiple broken bones. The crash is currently under investigation. And now a uh, editorial offering that comes to us from the Dunkirk Evening Observer and is titled, Not Enough Worries Over Lower Scores. Last week's report, the test scores in civics and history are dropping should be concerning not just to teachers, but to all of us. The National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, tested about 7,800 students across the country in civics and 8,000 students in U.S. history between January and March of 2022. The test had last been given in 2018. On a point scale of 0 to 500, the average U.S. history score dropped five points to 258, continuing a downward trend that began in 2014. Just 13% of eighth graders scored at or above the proficient level. In civics, the average score dropped two points to 150 between 2018 and 2022. Just 22% of eighth graders scored at or above the proficient level. Some point to the COVID-19 pandemic as a reason for the decrease in history and civics test scores. But the slide actually started in 2014, well before the pandemic began. It's more likely the decline in civics and history knowledge is the result of simple, old-fashioned neglect. As the focus has turned to reading, math, and in many districts, STEM learning, history and civics is being left behind. Those who cover government don't need the NAEP to tell us that the nation's collective knowledge and understanding of government, civics, or history is decreasing. We see people struggling to understand how government is supposed to work, which branches of government are supposed to handle certain tasks, and how past events tie into current events. Most importantly, we see it in our elections. Candidates with depth are left by the wayside, while candidates with few ideas, little substance, and an ability to captivate the public's attention for their outlandishness are becoming more and more successful. As our national civics knowledge decreases, our politics gets worse because fewer of our country's youth realize the importance of making informed choices at the ballot box or of voting at all. The New York Board of Regents is in the midst of discussions to change the state's graduation standards. We hope they are paying attention to the NAEP scores in civics and history and consider ways to boost those scores by requiring more civics education as a requirement for graduation. Uh, but fortunately, we have critical race theory and the 1619 project filling in those gaps in our uh, high schoolers' knowledge of history. Uh, and of course, uh, with millennials believing that history began on the day they were born, uh, it's, it's very difficult to uh, connect them to the past and help them to understand how that affects their current situation and can affect their future. And yes, they go into the ballot box and it's more like they're voting for their favorite entertainer than hiring somebody to do a very serious job in government. And this is a strange little article 
uh, coming from Sophie Austin and Christopher Weber via the Associated Press. Headline, Man Killed While Helping Ducklings Safely Cross Busy California Street. No, this isn't a joke. This is a serious story. From Rockland, California. His family says it's no surprise that Casey Rivera's final act was one of compassion. When he spotted a mama duck trying to guide her ducklings across a busy California intersection, Rivera stopped his car at a red light and got out to help them make it to safety. Rivera made sure traffic in all directions was stopped, then escorted the duck and her babies to the other side of the street around 8.15 p.m. last Thursday in suburban Rockland, northeast of Sacramento. All the ducks made it safely across, said 11-year-old Jude Peterson, who was watching with the carpool group after track practice. He did something amazing. His good deed done, Rivara was walking back to his car when another vehicle came through the intersection and struck him. He flew through the air and landed in the street. The 41-year-old father of two died at the scene. Casey was the kindest, most amazing husband and father. Even his last act in this world was a sign of his compassion, his aunt Tracy Rivera wrote on a verified GoFundMe page, raising money for his widow and their 11-year-old daughter and 6-year-old son. Nearly $90,000 was raised by Tuesday afternoon. The family is trying to figure out how to recover and keep going after this immense loss, his aunt wrote. The driver of the car that hit him, a 17-year-old girl, remained at the scene and is cooperating with investigators, said Rockland Police Captain Scott Horilo. Detectives are still interviewing witnesses and reviewing video, he said, but it doesn't appear the teen driver will face charges. Right now, we don't have any reason to believe there was any criminal negligence, Horilo said Monday. He called it a tragic accident. Flowers adorned a growing memorial to Rivera at the accident site on Tuesday in Rockland, a city of about 73,000 people. Somebody also left several toy rubber ducks. Casey was married to Angela Chow, his high school sweetheart. The inseparable pair met at age 17 when she arrived at his high school as an exchange student from Hong Kong, according to the GoFundMe page. His family was Casey's world, and to remain even closer to them, he had recently started working at their children's school. Tracy Rivera wrote, he loved working at the school as he was able to positively impact other children. His wife said the family has been touched by the outpouring of love and support from family, friends, co-workers, and community members. It's truly humbling to hear how Casey has positively impacted your lives, and we're extremely grateful for that, Chow wrote Monday on Facebook. She said she planned to compile the tributes in a book that our children can turn to whenever they miss him. And now a pause for station identification. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And I think this will end up being a very uh, important uh, incident, a very important, have a very important impact uh, on your guys' community here. Um, Headline is Amazon Project Moving Forward. Town officials say construction on distribution center could start by August by Rick Pfeiffer. More than 10 months after the Niagara Town Board gave its final and unanimous approval to a site plan for the construction of a $550 million Amazon distribution facility near the Niagara Falls International Airport, the 216 acres of land at 8995 Lockport Road remains largely untouched. It's moving slowly, Niagara Town Supervisor Lee Wallace said Tuesday night. The Amazon project is moving very slowly. 
but the man who championed the project and helped to guide its approval said he believes there are only a few hurdles left until there are shovels in the ground and construction begins. We're still optimistic, Wallace said. There was a delay with the Army Corps of Engineers over the stormwater drainage system, and we're still awaiting the final sign-off from Amazon headquarters. But barring any other unforeseen obstacles, Wallace said, we're hoping construction will start in August. The online retailing behemoth has been active in advancing its project since the town board site plan approval in July. A month after the town board action, the Niagara County Industrial Development Agency approved a $123 million package of tax breaks for the project. In March, the New York Power Authority awarded Amazon a nearly 10.7 megawatt allocation of low-cost hydropower from the Niagara Power Project. Those actions suggest that Amazon has not backed off the project. However, in March, a supply chain consulting group reported that Amazon had canceled, closed, or delayed 99 U.S. facilities impacting nearly 32.3 million square feet of active or planned ground-level space in 30 states. MWPLV International said most of the closed facilities were located in the Boston-Washington, D.C. corridor and in California, Florida, and the Chicago metro area. Fulfillment centers and last-mile delivery stations were reportedly the facilities most impacted by the closures. Amazon has disputed those numbers. The Town of Niagara Project, a 3 million square foot, five-story distribution facility, has been described as a fulfillment center. Amazon says fulfillment centers are the locations where merchandise sold and purchased on the online retailer's website is trucked in by tractor trailers and then sent to delivery centers. Delivery centers are where Amazon's ubiquitous blue vans are filled and prepared for home and business deliveries. They are commonly called last mile stations. In its application for the project, Amazon projected that up to 1,000 full and part-time jobs would be created with the opening of the warehouse facility. The site plan indicates that the center would have in excess of 50 loading docks and provide parking for close to 500 tractor trailers. Amazon projects 494 tractor trailers would would come and go at the site daily. The site would also provide more than 1,700 individual parking spaces for employees and visitors. The project has been staunchly opposed by a group of town residents who live in close proximity to the site of the proposed warehouse. Their objections have centered largely on the amount of traffic, first from construction vehicles and ultimately from tractor trailers, that the distribution center will create. However, Wallace and other town officials have called the project essential to the community's survival. The supervisor says the town doesn't raise enough money from property taxes to pay for its expenses and has balanced its annual budget in recent years by borrowing money from its fund balance. Wallace has characterized that practice as unsustainable. If we didn't develop the Amazon project, we'd get $24,000 a year in property taxes from that land, the supervisor said. Amazon will pay between $800,000 to $1 million in property taxes. We can't raise that kind of money anywhere else. After the site plan approval, John Bancroft, a partner and co-founder of JB2 Partners, the project developer, had indicated that once the issues of power allocation and tax breaks had been resolved, that work on the project could, be, could begin very quickly. However, he declined to speculate on a date for groundbreaking. The project will take 24 months to complete, according to Bancroft.
And what would a reading be without a story about some kind of problem with property or the property owner? Apparently it's in every issue. The headline of this one reads, Nuisance Property Owner Appears in Housing Court. Now, it all depends where you put your emphasis. Is the nuisance the property owner or is the nuisance the property? Locust Street property owner wants to work with city on correcting violations. This is after he appears in housing court. The owner of property on the corner of Locust and Genesee Streets attended City of Lockport housing court presided over by Judge Tom DeMillo on Tuesday. Mike Howe of MBH Homes Development Group said he is fully willing to comply with the city's demands. DeMillo counted more than 27 separate violations, exterior and interior, on the apartment building which holds 13 units, though Howe said he was not sure how many were allowed in the home. The property, 96 Locust, has been on the mind of Common Council President Paul Beekman, who was notified by a neighbor as to the amount of police activity at the residence. It looks like a zombie apocalypse is going on at that house, Beekman said. It's unacceptable. One rooming house is destroying the neighborhood, and either the owner takes responsibility or we're going to declare it a nuisance property and have it vacated. Tenants and everyone. That is the consequence. Mayor Michelle Roman also had some things to say. We continue to fight for the health and safety of all residents, she said, including the tenants and neighbors. And we hope landlords do the right thing. DeMillo told Howe that there needed to be some plan for the property. When Howe said that he had inherited the problem, DeMillo was frank. You purchased the problem, he said. Currently, the matter of the house being a nuisance property is on hold, along with the over two dozen violations, including fire violations, as a resolution is sought. Pat McGrath, City Council, said that Howe indicated he wants to work with the building inspector to bring the property back into compliance. The possibility of an action pursuant to public nuisance law is still pending, McGrath said. Howe is due back at court on June 13th. And as I think that uh, uh, positive experiences and achievements uh, made by our younger folks uh, should be noted and applauded and supported. Uh, I give you now uh, a article headlined Two DeSales Students Named Mullane Family Scholarship Recipients. Many years ago, the Mullane family established a scholarship at DeSales in the name of their father, Jack, a graduate of DeSales Catholic High School and the University of Notre Dame and a longtime supporter of Catholic education. This annual generous gift is awarded to a student who will be attending a Catholic high school. In sponsoring a DeSales graduate through this scholarship, Jack Mullane's memory and generous spirit are honored. <clears throat> After reviewing this year's applicants, the Mullane family has chosen to give two $1,000 awards this year. The Mullane family does so much for DeSales and Catholic education. These scholarships are just one example of their commitment and generosity, Principal Karen Rahill said of the annual award. Current DeSales 8th grader Molly McCabe is one of this year's Mullane Family Scholarship recipients. Molly is involved in National Junior Honor Society, St. Francis Society, the DeSales basketball, volleyball, and soccer teams, student council, and running club. Molly's classmates describe her as kind, intelligent, and someone with a great sense of humor. Molly said of her experience attending DeSales Catholic School, Throughout my time at DeSales, I have learned many important lessons and the value of hard work. My time at DeSales will always be with me and help me as I go forward. I am excited about the experiences and opportunities that lie ahead. Molly is the daughter of Jeff and Kristen McCabe of Lockport. 
Molly will continue her education in the fall at the Buffalo Academy of the Sacred Heart, earning the Mother Magdalene Damon Scholarship. Wow. Fellow DeSales 8th grader May Sadler was also named as a Mullane Family Scholarship recipient. May is the president of the Student Council, a member of the National Junior Honor Society, the St. Francis Society, and the volleyball team. She is also a founding member of the Keenan Center Youth Board. May reflected on her time at DeSales. My love for DeSales and the people I have met here will stay with me forever. In reflecting, I am reminded of how special the bonds between myself, my friends, and my teachers have been throughout my time at DeSales. From here, I hope to do my part to make a positive impact on others and the world. May is the daughter of Michael and Jessica Sadler of Lockport. She will attend the Buffalo Academy of the Sacred Heart in the fall, where she has earned the Gerard R. and Mary Louise Schumacher Memorial Scholarship. Citing that both May and Molly have excelled both academically and civically, Principal Ray Hill commented, May and Molly have been close friends for a long time and are both so deserving of this scholarship. It is quite fitting that they share this prestigious award together. I am proud of all they have accomplished here at DeSales and know they are both well prepared for the challenges of high school. DeSales is Eastern Niagara County's only Catholic school, serving over 300 students in early childhood education through 8th grade. For more information, visit DeSalesCatholicSchool.org. Now, toss in a little politics here, because as we all know, we don't get enough of it. Uh, headline, Crocker Mangiello facing off for GOP line in supervisor's race. Primary election set for June 27th by Benjamin Joe. A primary will decide the Republican line on the ballot in the town of Lockport supervisor's race. Dave Mangiello, auto shop repair owner, is challenging longtime town supervisor Mark Crocker on the GOP line. Crocker said that he believed that experience will count with the voters. Between himself and the town board members, there is collectively 60 years worth of experience, he said. But where Crocker sees his eight years as town supervisor and 10 as councilman as an asset, Mangello does not. It feels like there should be a regime change, he countered. They are so disconnected from the people. Crocker touts a record of running a fiscally conservative operation with continued balanced budgets. He said he's overseen several infrastructure and public safety improvement projects. The town's IDA park expanding, improvements at Day Road Park, and has negotiated with unions, fire companies, and the concrete supplier company Lafarge, the last of which resulted in the town receiving $100,000 yearly. Mangiello noted assessments rising, kicking us when we were down after COVID, and political persecution, which he said was evident when his own charges against town officials were dismissed without explanation, stemming from a May altercation where Mangiello confronted Crocker, Councilman Dufour and DiCarlo at a restaurant over assessments. Mangiello accused DiCarlo of striking him, but on the night of DiCarlo's hearing in town of Royalton Court, he was told by court personnel that the judge dismissed the case and ordered the record sealed. Hmm. Okay. That's how disconnected these people are, Mangiello said. They think they can do anything. Crocker responded to questions involving the ethics of town officials gathering together outside of town meetings, saying that they were not discussing town business. We're allowed to be friends, Crocker said. One of the things we take seriously is transparency. We have nothing to hide, and we understand the rules. And one of the rules is we can meet and talk and be friends, and we are very careful not to discuss town business. Crocker also said that Mangello owes approximately $125,000 in unpaid taxes, 
Mangiello said his assessment was unreasonably high and he is challenging the taxes in court. And once again, you are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Next up, headline reading, Elementary School Principal Charged. Administrator of Roy B. Kelly School charged with DWI after crashing her car into a tree on Monday by Benjamin Joe. Lockport police say an elementary school principal was charged with driving while intoxicated after crashing her vehicle into a tree early Monday evening. Police were called to the accident scene on Davidson Road at about 7.15 p.m. Monday. Heather B. Walton, 49, of Lewiston, was found by police at the accident site but could not explain as to what caused her to crash into the tree. Police administered field sobriety tests on Walton, all of which she failed. She refused to give a breathalyzer test, according to LPD reports. Police reported that Walton, the principal of Roy B. Kelly Elementary School, stated she had two mixed drinks containing liquor at 3 p.m. That would be four hours before the accident. Walton was charged with driving while intoxicated, refusing to take a breathalyzer, and failure to use a designated lane. Superintendent Mathis Calvin said that he could not answer any questions pertaining to Walton's arrest, but rather submitted a written statement. The Lockport City School District is aware of a recent incident involving a district administrator and local law enforcement authorities. The administrator at issue is on leave while the district continues to review and assess the circumstances at issue. The district is not able to provide any further detail at this time. Walton could not be reached for comment, but Police Chief Stephen Abbott confirmed that the elementary school principal of Roy B. Kelly was arrested on Monday night during a brief phone call. Ah, here's a happy article. Headline, Opening Day for the Olcott Carousel Park has arrived. Will be open Friday through Sunday until Labor Day by Thomas Tedesco. A local favorite in Olcott is reopening for for the season this Memorial Day weekend. This year marks the 21st year in business for the Olcott Carousel Park. On Friday afternoon, park manager Rosemary Sansone was putting the finishing touches on months of planning and preparations ahead of the park's opening. The park's main attraction, a Herschel Spillman two-row carousel from 1928, will be in full swing once again after receiving an extensive restoration a couple years ago. Anyone riding the carousel can also take in the views of nearby Lake Ontario during their ride. It's one of the very few that overlooks a lake, too. You can see it straight through, Sansone said. In addition to the carousel, the park has many vintage rides that have some local connections, including three kiddie car rides that date back to the 1940s and 1950s. There are also seven lanes of skee-ball, that had been acquired from several parks, including the former Olcott Amusement Park, Crystal Beach Amusement Park, and the Atlantic City Boardwalk, Sansone said. In the middle of the park is a Ferris wheel that was originally from notable Niagara Falls establishment Page's Whistle Pig. In front of that ride reads a sign that reads, Building Memories for a New Generation. That's why we have that sign up there, so that people can bring their children, grandchildren, and ride rides that they did, she said. Besides the rides, the park has a vintage arcade, daily magic shows from Rob and Carol Allen, and one of the park's most popular attractions, the Pick Up a Duck game, Sansone said. The park will also be bringing back its Christmas in July and Park After Dark events that were part of their 20th anniversary celebrations last year. Sansone said she is looking forward to seeing the kids at the park once again. They'll come in and then 
organ, the organ will start playing and they'll start marching, jumping and hopping. Then all of a sudden they'll burst away from the parents, screaming and running up to get on the ride, she said. The park will be open from noon to 6 p.m., Saturday, Sunday and, and Memorial Day, and will be open from Friday to Sunday until Labor Day. The cost of admission is just 25 cents. I get all choked up reading that article. I just remember the days when I took my boys there, and uh, happy, happy days they were. I also miss those days when the uh, Niagara Celtic Festival was held at Krull Park uh, with its, its beautiful, you know, looking over the lake and the rolling hills, you know, and people walking around dressed up in, you know, period appropriate costumes and it was just a magical time it's a magical place i really i really love uh olcott and i'm, I'm glad that the park is uh the amusement park is uh in operation again take your kids there man it's memories you will you will never forget and this next article just reminds me of how grateful i am that i have never owned lived near or had any interaction whatsoever with these short-term rental properties that seem to be such a problem in so many areas that I've been reading articles like this, I believe, since my first day here. So to continue the never-ending story, headline, New Fane establishes law on short-term rentals. There are about 40 short-term rental establishments located in the town by Thomas Tedesco. The Newfane Town Board has approved of a new local law to regulate short-term rentals. Owners of these properties will be required to apply for a permit from the town that will cost $250 per year. They will also be subject to a house inspection by the town's building inspector in order to operate, according to town attorney Jim Sansone. Since there was no law previously in place to address or accommodate the roughly 40 short-term rental establishments located in Newfane, they were technically illegal. The law also addresses the zoning aspects of these properties since many of them are located in residential areas. A lot of properties were in zones that, weren't that they weren't allowed in, Supervisor John Syracuse said. We're trying to make that right. The new law also applies to bed and breakfast establishments. The vote on the law by the board was not a unanimous one, however. Board members Sue Neidlinger was the only one to vote against the establishment of the law. While Neidlinger agreed with most of the law, she said it didn't go far enough. Neidlinger specifically wanted to see a limit on the number of short-term rental establishments allowed in the town. She said having no limit could have a negative impact on things such as affordable housing and local businesses in the town. All of those houses don't have people in them that are using local businesses. They're not using your local hardware store or hairdresser, Neidlinger said. Again, I don't know the ins and outs of these uh, short-term rentals, but Neidlinger's uh, assessment that the people in those houses don't use local businesses um, strikes me as odd. I mean, if, you're, if you pick a place and you're staying there for two, three weeks, uh, isn't it more than likely that at, at least some point you're going to have to go to local grocery store or restaurant or some other enterprise or attraction that caused you to go to Newfane and rent the uh, rent the place in the first place. I mean, they're, it would just seem that they're not going to just sit in these um, in these houses and these rental properties and and do nothing. That doesn't make sense. But like I said, I don't know the ins and outs of this thing. <clears throat> uh, Neidlinger also added that the cap could have given the town more flexibility in regulating short-term rentals, which seems like they have the crap being regulated out of them now. 
I just wanted to see a cap put on until we got a good feel for what ramifications they are going to have on our small community. If there were no ramifications, we could always lift the cap. Some Airbnb owners feel that the law goes a little too far. Mike Pettit, a Lockport resident, owns two Airbnb properties in Olcott. He said that he feels this law is unnecessary because of regulations he previously has complied with from entities such as Airbnb or Niagara County. He added that short-term rentals should fall in the same classification as other rental properties. Any of my guests could report me if there was a violation, Pettit said. It should be no different than apartments or anything like that. Mike Rittenauer is an owner of owner of an Airbnb property in Burt. He said that he understands both sides of the issue. I'm in favor of maintaining the health and safety aspect of the short-term rental market, Rittenauer said. I'm not in favor of permit fees and other burdens. Sansone said that they have gone through all the necessary steps at the town and county level to approve the law. It will go into effect immediately once it is received by the New York Secretary of State. That is a perfect example of government in America in 2023. You have fearful legislators imposing regulations and fees on people who are trying to make a living and in a situation where there are already protections in place to make sure that the properties are up to snuff and that the uh, those who are renting them have no serious complaints. And next up we have an article that I believe has danger written all over it. And this is uh, comes to us by Laura Ungar and from the Associated Press. Headline reading, Musk's brain implant company, Neuralink, can begin U.S. trials. Elon Musk's brain implant company, Neuralink, says it's gotten permission from U.S. regulators to begin testing its device in people. The company made the announcement on Twitter Thursday evening, but has provided no details about a potential study, which was not listed on the U.S. government database of clinical trials. Officials with the Food and Drug Administration wouldn't confirm or deny whether the agency granted the approval, but press officer Carly Kempler said in an email that the FDA acknowledges and understands that Musk's company made the announcement. Probably Carly couldn't confirm whether or deny whether the agency granted the approval because she's got an implant in her brain and Elon told her to shut up. Neuralink is one of many groups working on linking the nervous system to computers. Wonderful. Efforts aimed at helping treat brain disorders, overcoming brain injuries, and other applications. And still, as a guy whose son, three weeks from today, is going to undergo brain surgery, I don't want a chip in his head from anybody. Uh, earlier this week, for example, researchers in Switzerland published research in the journal Nature describing an implant that restores communication between the brain and spinal cord to help a man with paralysis to stand and walk naturally. There are more than 30 brain or spine computer interface trials underway according to clinicaltrials.gov. Musk, who also owns Twitter and is the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, said last December that his team was in the process of asking regulators to allow them to test the Neuralink device. The device is about the size of a large coin and is designed to be implanted in the skull with ultra-thin wires going directly into the brain. Musk has said the first two applications in people would be to attempt to restore vision. 
and try to help people with little or no ability to operate their muscles rapidly using digital devices. He also said he envisions that signals from the brain could be bridged to, to Neuralink devices in the spinal cord for someone with a broken neck. After Musk made a presentation late last year about the device, Rajesh Rao, co-director of the Center for Neurotechnology at the University of Washington, said he doesn't think Neuralink is ahead of other teams in terms of brain-computer interface achievements, but is quite ahead in terms of the hardware in the devices. It's unclear how well this device or similar interfaces will ultimately work or how safe they might be. Neuralink's interface is considered an investigational device at this point, and clinical trials are designed to collect data on safety and effectiveness. In its tweet this week, Neuralink said that it's not yet recruiting participants for the study and will soon provide more information. Well, like I said, as a son with a brain anomaly, not it's not life-threatening well all surgery is life-threatening but uh, and uh, somebody like me who's got many spinal issues and of course um, uh, you folks in our, in our audience with vision difficulty I mean think about it um, would you be willing to put a, a experimental chip in your brain I mean many of many of us uh, easily acceded to having an experimental quasi-vaccine placed into our bodies and now we are getting data back and you know able to decide if we made the right move then or not so I think we're going to be in the same position with this I just don't like anybody else in my head you know I don't know it's there's just it's it's single occupancy as far as I'm concerned and again you are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And let's see what I can sneak in in the 10 minutes or so that I have left. Headline, Haunted Forest in Limbo hmm, after board calls for study. Wilson Attraction required to have environmental impact study done by Thomas Tedesco. With a third year of operation on the horizon, the status of the haunted forest attraction is in limbo. At the Zoning Board of Appeals meeting on Wednesday, it did not renew the haunted forest's special use permit, but determined that the operators need to perform an environmental impact study of the property before they decided on its renewal. Owner Corey Quinn said this is one of several delays the town of Wilson has imposed on the haunted forests, and he is unsure at this point if they will have enough time to adequately prepare for their opening in the fall. In calling for the environmental impact study, Quinn said board members cited what they determined to be heavy traffic in the area when the, attra when the attraction operates. The haunted forest has been much maligned by neighbors of the property at 2860 BB Road. Several complaints have been made by neighbors over the past two years the attraction has been in operation. The complaints have mostly been over noise, bright lights, and traffic, amongst others. Several neighbors showed up in support of and against the haunted forest at Wednesday's meeting. While Quinn said he understands the concerns of neighbors, many of them are inaccurate, and that he has never received any citations from the town. I hate to call anybody liars, but when somebody says that we operated till 1230 in the morning, that is a complete lie. When people say that there were traffic issues, near accidents, and people veering all over the place, it's a complete lie, he said. Quinn estimated the environmental survey could take anywhere between one to six months to complete, which will significantly delay the preparation for opening of the attraction. We are in absolute limbo, Quinn said. We're kind of taking a step back to see if we're even going to open, 
and what our legal options are at this point, another example of government getting in the way of business. And it's going to, be, it's going to take a long time to do the environmental uh, impact study because the officials who would do that study are scared to death to go into the haunted forest and root around in there, you know, bright lights and weird noises and uh, uh, seeing ghosts and stuff, you know. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see uh, if anybody is, uh, is willing to perform that, that study. And now something from the uh, op-ed section, and it is given to us by the nationally syndicated commentator Star Parker, president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education and host of the weekly television show, Cure America with Star Parker. And her piece is headlined, Welfare Work Requirements Make Everyone Better Off. The Congressional Budget Office has just released its latest projection for the next 10 years. In the agency's updated projections, annual deficits nearly double over the next decade, reaching $2.7 trillion in 2033. As a result of those deficits, debt held by the public also increases in CBO's projections from 98% of GDP at the end of this year to 119% at the end of 2033. I've seen even worse numbers, but we'll use those. The picture keeps getting worse. The difference between Democrats and Republicans on the issue. Republicans say, let's do something. Democrats say, let's do nothing. House Republicans have put forward the Limit, Save, Grow Act as condition for increasing the debt limit, which imposes limits on the growth of spending over the next 10 years and achieves reductions in expenditures. Democrats are beside themselves because Republicans propose to achieve efficiencies in spending in Medicaid and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP or food stamps and temporary assistance for needy families by imposing more stringent work requirements. The idea that those getting welfare should have some skin in the game regarding humanitarian assistance they receive from U.S. taxpayers is an idea that is bonkers to our president and his party. But for me, Democrats screaming about cruelty and heartlessness regarding work requirements for welfare is nothing new. I started my public career working on welfare reform passed in 1996. It was my personal experience with the horrifying and destructive realities of welfare that opened my eyes to how badly reform was needed. I was in the system as a young woman and collected welfare in the pre-welfare reform world of AFDC or Aid to Families with Dependent Children. I saw from the inside the destructiveness inhumanity and cruelty of government support pretending to be assistance and charity. Welfare funds were available to women who were not poor, not working, and not married. Those, who, those were the conditions that had to be met to get the money. Instead of being charitable and humanitarian, the government assistance was really a heartless subsidy that encouraged poverty, unemployment, and sexual promiscuity out of marriage. Welfare reform in 1996 showed how a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, could productively work with a Republican House under the leadership of then-Speaker Newt Gingrich. Bill Clinton had promised to end welfare as we know it, and House Republicans stepped up to work with him. When temporary assistance for needy families was put forward by Republicans, Reforming welfare with work requirements and time limits, Democrats started screaming, as they are screaming now. Poor women would be thrown into the streets. It is amazing how those who supposedly care about people have such little respect for humanity, creativity, and resiliency of those same people. When suddenly poor women on welfare were faced with time limits for welfare and work requirements, the world changed for the better for everyone. In 2006, 10 years after welfare reform was passed, 
Ron Haskins, Brookings Institution scholar, testified before Congress summarizing the results. From 1994 to 2005, welfare caseloads declined 60 percent. From 1993 to 2000, employment among single mothers increased from 58.9 percent to 75 percent. Employment among never married mothers increased from 44 percent to 66 percent. For female-headed households in the bottom 40 percent of the income distribution, income attributable to earnings increased from 30 percent to 55 percent. From 1993 to 2000, an income and income attributed to welfare declined from 60 percent to 23 percent. Theologians and philosophers over the ages have noted that the highest charitable act is to help someone become self-sufficient, or as it has been put, the greatest welfare program is a job. Unfortunately, the many forms of welfare distri distributed by our government take recipients in the opposite direction. Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans are doing the nation a favor with the Limit, Save, Grow Act. Let's hope they get somewhere with a president and a Democratic Party whose vision for our future is a nation bloated with spending, debt, and dependence. And finally, we have uh, reached the 70th anniversary of the first successful climb to the summit of Mount Everest. Seventy years ago, Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzing Norgay, a guy with a fantastic personal story, a Sherpa from Nepal became the first climbers to successfully reach the summit of Mount Everest, the highest point on Earth. A number of attempts had been made since the first in 1921 to climb to the summit of Mount Everest, 29,035 feet above sea level. A few had resulted in deaths of climbers. None had been successful. In 1952, a Swiss expedition got to within 825 feet of the summit, but had to turn back because it was running out of oxygen. The air at that altitude is so thin that climbers need, to bre need breathing aids to stay alive. In early 1953, a British team launched an attempt backed by an army of assistants to help carry supplies and set up camps along the way. By May 21st, the team was ready to make its assault on the summit. Two noted climbers were chosen to set out from their highest camp, but after slow and tough climbing and running low on oxygen, they were forced to turn back only 330 feet from the top. That's the length of a football field, basically. Three days later, the expedition sent its second pair upward, a 33-year-old beekeeper Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and 38-year-old Nepalese Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, the latter of whom had been part of the Swiss summit team the previous year. By 9 a.m., the duo had reached an impossibly thin rocky ridge. Hillary and Norgay used their axes to squeeze between a pillar of rock and a sheet of ice. This final obstacle to the summit came to be known as the Hillary Step. They reached the summit just before noon. They congratulated each other. Hillary snapped a photo of Tenzing, and they began to climb back downward after only 15 minutes or so. News of the successful summit was rushed by runner from the advance camp to base camp farther down the mountain. A reporter at base camp sent a coded radio message to England, where the Times of London announced the achievement on June 1st 1953, the eve of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from recent issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal. Your reader has been Rich Longino. I thank you for listening and pray to God that whatever summit you guys are trying to reach, that you will, that you will attain that goal. God bless. Talk to you soon. County residents call the Erie County Snow Line at 716-858-SNOW for non-life-threatening but serious situations. County employees will answer calls 24-7 during the current blizzard. Callers can leave a message if there is a high call volume. 
medical emergencies call 911. Residents can also send questions to snow at erie.gov. The following program is intended for listeners who are blind, have low vision, or have another print disability.